Well, this morning we are back in our study in the book of Mark. And this has been so good. Last Sunday in our City Group Sundays, we talked about the great commandment. Remember that? And we kind of studied deeply what does it mean when this, this scribe comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? Right? What's the greatest one? Jesus, in turn, gives him two. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so we, we, we got into that. What does that look like? What does that mean for us as believers in Jesus? Um, what's so cool about our story today and what we'll look in God's Word at today is that we get to actually see an example of somebody who looks like that, who does that, and how we can learn from her. So let me give you a little context on kind of where we're going, just a little bit. Uh, this is still Wednesday, most likely, before Good Friday, what we call Good Friday today. This is most likely Wednesday before Jesus is crucified on Friday, all right? And so Jesus has been sort of making these little short trips. It's about a mile from Bethany where he stays up Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives with his friends and comes down the mountain in the, through the, the Kidron Valley uh, into the old city of Jerusalem. And when he comes into the old city, he, uh, he's, he's doing these different things. One day he runs out the thieves, right? And uh, another day he's teaching. Uh, he, he's doing all these amazing things. Well, the, as you can imagine, the leaders of the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, are kind of going, who does this guy think he is? Like, first of all, even teaching. They call him rabbi, but I, he, he wasn't my student, was he yours? No. Who does he think he is? He doesn't have authority here. And so one Sunday we, we talked about the fact that Jesus says, you know, he kind of puts a question out there for them and says, well, tell me about John the Baptist, is what we call him. Tell me about John and his ministry. Was from heaven or from men? And they're like, uh, we don't know. They, he stumped them, right? And so when they can't answer him, he goes, well, neither will I answer you about my authority. And so Jesus has been kind of this back and forth with these leaders. And after uh, the John the Baptist thing, he tells this scathing parable, really. And the text says they understand that the parable is about them. Their plan to kind of try and trap Jesus and ultimately kill Jesus is beginning to come out. People are beginning to see that, and they know that, and that just frustrates them more. Well, they come back later in the day, and they think, we've got the right questions now, right? And so Hayden talked about that two weeks ago, about what, if, what about taxes? Okay, that was a pretty good answer. Uh, what, about, uh, what about resurrection? And of course, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, so they're asking this, we think we can trap him here. No, Jesus, again, uh, answers perfectly and wonderfully. And yet somewhere in the middle of these questions, there sort of seems to be what seems like somewhat of a sincere question by this scribe we studied last week, a little bit. Maybe, and we don't know for sure, but he just, he says, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? And so after Jesus tells him, he, he, there's this kind of this really interesting moment where Jesus looks at the man and he says, you are not far from the kingdom. Remember that? I like that Daryl told me this week, he said, you know what I loved about that is Jesus, in essence, is the kingdom, right? And he literally physically was saying to a man right next to him, you're not far from the kingdom. This dual meaning of you're, you're close. You don't fully understand yet. And how beautiful a story. So that's kind of some of the things that have been going on. Well, today, Jesus turns the tables. And it goes from answering questions to asking some, some more questions, right? And so let's look at our text in Mark chapter 12. 
We're going to look at verses 35 to 44. And even in this text, you see the grace and mercy of Jesus who, who wants people to know him for who he is. He wants them to know his grace and his mercy, right? So here's Mark 12, 35. It says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put under, uh, put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng, a bunch of people heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny together. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. It is life to us. The most important thing that we will do today is to read your word, to glean what you want us to take from your word, not just to learn about what happened in this moment, but to learn in our own lives how you would have us to live, who you would have us to be, how you would have us to believe. So God, open our hearts now by the power of the same Spirit that inspired David to write that psalm. Open our hearts to understand your truth, to hear your word, and God, by your grace and mercy, give us the courage to be obedient to it, to be who you're calling us to be. God, we love you with all that we are, and we are so thankful to be here together, so thankful for your word, and we pray that you would apply it to our lives, help us to be different because of it. I pray... Um, again, by the power of the Spirit of God, that you'd help me to decrease in this time, Lord, and that you would increase in our presence and in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this is an interesting uh, thing that's going on here. Jesus has turned the tables. You, you get the sense that where Jesus was sort of facing the crowd about this size of, of leaders of the temple, he's answering these questions. You kind of get the sense, okay, well, here's the answer to that. Or here's the challenge here. And maybe behind him or to the sides are the throng of people, including his disciples and those that would listen to him. And now he's turned the table. So now he's, he's asking them questions and he's talking about them and he's speaking to the throng of people and to his disciples. Now you're on the spot, men, right? That's, there's this, this change of, of perspective, if you will. Verse 35. Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
David himself calls him Lord. So how can uh, he be his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. There's three kind of, they're not separate, but it feels a little bit sometimes like three different stories in, in this text today. And I want us to look, they're not, they're not totally removed from one another. When you first look at it, you kind of go, how, does, how do these relate? But I believe that they do. And the first thing I want us to look at is that Jesus is the Messiah, right? We know that. And he's communicating and, and helping, warning even these men in their sinfulness, in their blindness to understand that he is the Messiah. He is God incarnate. Jesus is referring to a Psalm of David, Psalm 110. Okay? And what I love about this moment is you can picture in your mind, whether it's from movies or in your own creativity, I don't know, but picture King David. And he's praying, he's worshiping, and the Holy Spirit inspires David to write something that's beyond his understanding, his knowledge, or his experience. It's, it's beyond his history. In fact, it's a thousand years removed from him. And yet the Holy Spirit in his power inspires David, and he writes this psalm, Psalm 110, down speaking of Messiah, who is Jesus. So as he does this, I want to kind of explain what, what he's saying. David's psalm in Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord. Well, let me explain who's who. The Lord, God Almighty, said to my Lord, Jesus. Right? The Lord, God Almighty, said to my Lord, Jesus. And then he, go, he goes on and says, uh, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, the thing we have to understand in this is that the common view of Messiah for Jews was that he would be a human being that came from the line of David, right? So somebody in David's line, his, his son, grandson, great-grandson, so on, so on, so on. That is what the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament. In fact, I pulled a couple of them. There's more than this. But these are a couple of, of my favorites. Isaiah 9 uh, says, For to us a child is born. We usually read this at Christmas, right? Look what it says. Child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Watch this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David, right? And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So from David's line will be a king who will rule and have the government on his shoulders. That means he's in control of everything, right? That is coming from David's line. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. In other words, that's talking about David's family tree, right? A righteous branch from David. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So they, they believe David would have a descendant that would be king. What Jesus is doing in this moment with these leaders, he's trying to help them understand he's not just going to be a human king. Yeah, there's humans that could come along and be mighty warriors. David was a mighty warrior. And maybe David's family will also be mighty warriors. And maybe they can save us from the oppression of Rome or from other countries. But they weren't seeing that 
that Messiah could not just be human. He had to be God as well. And even, even in the, these uh, texts that were written in the Old Testament, alluding to Messiah, speak of that reality. They, they, he couldn't just be human. He has to be God. But that kind of goes back to this spiritual misunderstanding that we even have and that they had in the moment that Messiah is coming and he's going to save us from Rome, right? That's the common thing. Messiah is going to come. Let's look for Messiah so we can get out from the situation of Rome. Jesus didn't come to make war with, with Rome. He came to bring peace with God and salvation. That's what he did. That's what he came to do. They didn't understand that. And can I just tell you a little point of application for us? Often we think about temporal things. I can see that. I can feel it. It's real. So I, I can believe in that. And we don't spend enough time thinking about spiritual things when that actually matters more than the things that are tangible and around us. And so we give our hearts, we give our allegiance, we give our worship to things around us and not to the, the concept or the understanding of the spiritual. The same thing is going on here. So here's what Jesus is, is trying to communicate, even in sort of a riddle sort of a way. God, he is God. Messiah is God. God is with us. The Bible says he is uh, Emmanuel. But what I love about this is Jesus, in essence, is saying, I was before David. I was with David. I'm now, I will be forevermore. Right? This, this sense that he is eternal. And try to wrap your brain around that. He came in the form of a man in the lineage of David. The Bible tells us in two places in the New Testament that Jesus was born in the line of David. And that he died. He rose again as Messiah. And then what happened after he rose again? The Bible says he goes and he is seated where? At the right hand of the Father. Jesus, as Messiah, completes this messianic prophecy of David. Because he's not just a human being. He is fully God and fully man, as Messiah has to be. I, I love this little statement that Jesus makes in John 8, 58. It is a laser statement about who he is. Make no mistakes. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That didn't go over so well in the temple. Because in the Old Testament and in the New, this is not the only place Jesus says, I am, in the New Testament. We studied it when he would calm the sea. He made a comment, I am. In other words, I am God in control of the sea. And in this moment, you don't understand, I'm not just right now. I'm not just the human being you're looking at before Abraham was, before David was. And Jesus, by the way, is removed from David a thousand years and yet still in his lineage to complete that prophecy of David. Here's a second thing in the second story. Jesus sees our sinful motives. Pretty convicting idea. And if you really go there for a minute, if you go there for just, just for a little bit, even here at, at our time of church together, he sees our hearts. He sees our brokenness. He sees the reality of who we are, not what we say, not what we want, but who we are. He sees who we are, just as he sees in these men, 
And in this story, this is one about judgment against this council. Verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Now, just think about this. He's looking at, at the crowd, but he's pointing at the scribes. Beware of these guys. Can you feel the tension that must have been in the room at the moment? Right? Beware of these con men who look, who, who like to walk around in long robes and like uh, greetings in the marketplaces and have been uh, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is a statement and a story of judgment, of inauthenticity. Jesus says, watch out for these fakes. And then he lists their several sins that are real in their lives. They, they, they think they can cover it up. But even as they say these things, the people are going, you know, you're right. <laughs> yeah. See, they want to be seen as important. They want to put on some sort of a, a thing so that they can be respected, so that they can be lifted up on a pedestal that is sinful. They want to be greeted in places as men of power. And they want to be given these places in, in important areas this honor. Not that they deserve or that they've worked for, just because they think they are religious and holy, when the reality is they are evil and sinful. See, God never calls us as his people to be prideful. That is the sin that, that Jesus is dealing with in these men. They're, they're prideful. But not only are they prideful, they have a, another piece to this story that is really even sadder, <laughs> more sad and, and uh, convicting in a way of, of these men. And that is that they, they're not only prideful, but they also steal. They're thieves. And they don't just steal from just anybody. They steal from the most vulnerable people they can possibly steal from. And not little things here and there. They steal homes, Jesus says. They steal everything. You know, it's one thing if you had some, have you ever had anything stolen? I remember I had a bike stolen one time and, and, I, and I felt like, oh my gosh, my bike. It just, part of me was gone. What, you know, it's just an awful feeling to have something uh, stolen out of your car or whatever the case may be. But can you imagine losing everything? Everything. That's what these men did. And on top of that, what made it worse is they deceived saying, listen, if you want your prayers to be heard, then you better give everything. If you want to have a relationship with God, you better give it all. How evil, how wrong, especially to those that needed help, that needed care, that needed to be served and loved well. They're not. These widows are taken advantage of. They manipulate and deceive, and they use their spiritual position as leverage with those who are the most vulnerable. So Jesus sees through their deception. He sees through their words. He, he, he's going to hold them to a greater condemnation, he says in verse 40. You might remember we studied in uh, Mark 9, Jesus was talking about people who take advantage of vulnerable people. Remember this? And he says, for, for those that, that take advantage of those young ones, those vulnerable ones, it'd be better for you to be drowned in the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. Jesus 
I mean, he goes to great detail about a greater punishment for those that would take advantage of vulnerable people. And here he, he goes even further. Matthew 23, 33, or Matthew, Matthew 23, the whole chapter is a, is a scolding chapter. If you look at it, it kind of, he just, he doesn't let up in Matthew 23. But verse 33 concludes, you serpents. Who's he referring to here when he calls them a snake? Satan, Satan right? From the garden. Let me tell you who you guys look like. Your father, Satan. The strong. I mean, this is, this is a, a greater condemnation. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How are you going to do it? Because I see your lives. I see your sinfulness. I see your deceit. I see you taking advantage of people. How will you escape hell? Just a, just a terrifying sort of a reality. But what's beautiful is, it doesn't matter what you've done or who you've been, Jesus can save anybody, right? And so what I love about the story, especially the first, we call it a section of the book of Acts that we studied. Somebody reminded me for a long five summers <laughs> recently. Um, but the first section of Acts all the way up to, to chapter 6, the last verse of that sort of section uh, says that a large number of priests become obedient to the faith after Jesus' resurrection. A large number of priests. Maybe it's this message. Maybe it's being called a, a viper. Maybe it's this sort of truth that Jesus lays out to them and says, I see your sinfulness. Get right. You're not serving me. You're serving Satan. And we know of a couple of uh, high-profile leaders. Joseph of Arimathea. Remember that guy? Bible says he was a good man. The text says he's a good man. And it also says that, that after Jesus dies, he goes to Pilate. He asks for Jesus' body. He's willing to be seen with the bloodied, broken, lifeless body of Jesus. And he gives Jesus his tomb to be laid in, a rich man, which also fulfills another prophecy. There's Nicodemus, who was also in the council. And he was a little afraid, so he comes to Jesus in John 3 in the cover of night. But what's beautiful is, I believe Joseph and Nicodemus and many priests come to faith because of Jesus' grace and mercy in the same way that we do, right? People who have wrong motives, and I'm their leader. Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Paul says in Romans 7, I believe, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And why does it seem like I can't do the thing I want to do? I'm so grateful for God's grace in our lives and the family of God that keeps us accountable and aware of the brokenness of who we are without him. Here's the third thing. Jesus sees our hearts. He doesn't only see our motives and the brokenness of our lives. He also sees our hearts even in moments when when we're being obedient and trusting. This final story as we wrap up Mark 12, Jesus sits down with his disciples. It's just such an interesting teaching model. Sits down and begins to observe. Verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury in the temple and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. 
One's not a penny. You've got to have two of them just to get a penny, right? And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, everything she had, all she had to live on. In the temple, in this treasury area, there would have been 13 receptacles for offering. We got one little black box back there. Just so you know, we got one little black box back there. But in the temple, they had 13, and they looked like trumpets. And so, if, for those of you who know, Leslie, you know the, the makeup of a, an instrument like this. If you dropped a coin in a trumpet, it would make some noise, wouldn't it? And if it was big and you dropped a bunch of coins in it, it would make a bunch of noise. So if you're rich and you want a little attention, just start dropping lots of coins. And people go, oh my gosh, this guy's got so much money. And he's, right? You get the attention of the offering. Well, guess what also brings attention? Dink. Little offering. So Jesus is watching. I, I got to tell you, so back in 2009, I had the incredible privilege. And I want to go again. Maybe we'll put a, a trip together one day. But I had the, the privilege of going to the Holy Land. And we were in Galilee, and we were at a little museum kind of a thing right there. Right off, you can see the Sea of Galilee. And I love, you know, I love history. I love archaeology. I love how science and archaeology proves the truth and the reality of the Bible over and over again. 25,000 archaeological digs, and not one has disproven biblical truth. Come on. So I'm sitting there, we're looking through stuff, and I'm just beaming because I'm doing stuff that I love. And I see in this glass these different artifacts, and there's a whole bowl full of these things. I'm like, what are those? I'm asking, what are those things right there? She goes, well, have you ever heard the story of the widow's mite? Yeah. She goes, those are mites. So I bought one. I'd love to show it to you after we finish. Um, but it's a very simple little copper coin. And as I read this morning, you know, and, and I asked the lady, now, is this 2,000 years old? She says, yeah. Maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not that good of an archaeologist that I can tell you if it is. I might have been taken. But I will tell you, though, as I've studied what they look like, they look just like this. But this is only half of a penny. If I came up to you and said, hey, I got a gift for you, and I gave you a penny, would you be like, thanks? Great. Or what if I cut it in half? That would even be, right? <laughs> the reason the text translate, translates the widow's mite as a penny is because it's the closest thing kind of to resemble. The penny is, is our lowest form of, of coinage. And the widow's mite was the lowest form of coinage in Palestine. It was 164th of a denarius. So if you were a day laborer and you worked all day, you would get one denarius. Two of these would represent about five minutes of work. I just have one. So it's this incredible moment that Jesus is watching and observing. She comes in with two of these, which I believe, I got one of them, just so you know. I'm pretty sure I have one of those that the lady put in the thing. I, I want to believe that. She puts in two, and Jesus begins to bring attention to this woman's sacrifice with his disciples. 
He didn't commend her on the amount, right? Whoa, look how much she's putting in. He commended her for the sacrifice that she made. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing. So this, that's an element of, of quantity, right? She put in more. And when you look at the tangible and you look at the things that, that are around us, the math doesn't make sense. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about her heart. He says they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. Now, I want to show you a couple of things. There's two things at play in this little story about this woman. Number one, her heart was so pure. She was so full of surrender. She was so desiring to give everything she had to the Lord that somehow in her beautiful heart, she gives literally everything she has, Jesus said. All that she had to live on. Now, there's two things, and I've, honestly, I've never noticed it until this week, until I read it in a commentary. And that is that the first thing is her beautiful heart. That she will go down in biblical history as a woman who worshipped so beautifully that she gave everything she had. There's another lady. You remember the other lady in the New Testament that Jesus actually says she'll be remembered in all of history. And it's the lady who breaks the alabaster box and pours the oil on Jesus' feet and with her tears and then wipes his feet dry with her hair. What an unbelievable, extravagant example of worship. She too gave everything she had to worship Jesus, but her gift was fairly expensive. And yet this woman is also remembered in biblical history, and hers was not. But guess what they both had? A right heart. They both gave from everything they had. It wasn't a matter of what they had. It was a matter of how much sacrifice was involved. The other aspect of this story is that it's an indictment against these leaders. See, God didn't require this woman to give everything she had. God didn't require this woman to give all that she had to live on. Right? I mean, if you look at it that way and you realize she gave everything, then what you begin to see is she's being taken advantage of. That these leaders are, are using their platform, as we've already talked about, to say, hey, you want your prayers heard. You want to be spiritual. You want to be saved. You want to go to heaven. You want to know God? Give it all away. And what is she doing? She's giving it away. So there's two things. Her beautiful heart of surrender that Jesus brings attention to, but also an indictment on evil people who take advantage of others. This text, this story, sits right in the middle of judgment texts. One above it, one coming up in chapter 13. And so this too, in, in, at least in some form, is a judgment against those evil men. So as we close, let me ask you this. What do we do with this text and any text that we deal with on a Sunday as we study it? What do we need to do with this? Well, number one, we try to learn from it. But it's not just about learning cognitively, not just loving the Lord with all your mind. There's other things to love, right, with. And so as we learn to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and strength, we have to ask the question, Lord, how do we respond to these things? Here's the, here's the things I want us to look at so that we can respond appropriately. Number one, do you believe in Jesus as Messiah? Do you believe in Christ? 
the one sent by God to redeem us for our sins. Not just David's son, not just a military leader, not just a human, the son of God, God incarnate before Abraham at the beginning of the world. He created it. Colossians 1 says he holds it all together. Do you believe in Jesus? Number two, do you live with humility? Does humility mark your life? Does authenticity mark your life? Does integrity mark your life? Do you have true faith in worship? Jesus said, the true worshipers will worship me in, in what? Spirit and truth. Is that representative of who you are? Jesus, at some point in his ministry, he calls these guys stage actors, hypocrites. He says, you're just living for a show. You're just living maybe to fool or deceive. And, and I've been a hypocrite. And there are days in my life where some of the, something comes out of my mouth or out of my heart or out of my actions that would say, I, I'm still one in ways. But that's the beauty of the body of Christ. That we walk in accountability with one another. We don't just attend a thing together where we really don't know one another. We don't just come into a room and go, oh yeah, that guy works over there and he lives kind of over there. Good to see you this morning. That is not the New Testament church. The New Testament church is where we wrestle together where we bear with one another, where we confess sin to one another, where we love one another, where we help one another, we serve. That is the New Testament church, and that is the expectation of the Lord for His church. Walk in accountability and humility as the church of Jesus. And then lastly, as we look at this woman's life, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. She loves in such a beautiful way that when, even as we get this example, we can't not take the actual representation of her giving to the Lord and not consider our giving to the Lord, right? We have to look at that. We have to consider that and talk about it. She does, so it's not about the amount. It's less about the amount and more about our faith. And I was thinking about this as I was praying about saying this and talking about some of this this morning, there have been times in my life where I've given and been a little nervous about it. Have you ever given and been a little nervous about it? <laughs> or a lot nervous about it? If you haven't, then you've probably not experienced the unbelievable blessing that comes with leaning into faith. You know, we don't talk about giving very much. We, um, I don't like to talk, if I can just be honest, transparent moment, I don't like it. I don't like to talk about it. The reason I don't like that, I've been held accountable by uh, my dear friend, Brother Jerry. Uh, he doesn't often hold me accountable. He's almost completely encouraging. But he, he's, he's uh, told me I need to work on that, and I do. The reason I don't like it is because we've been, the, we as people in the church have been taken advantage of over and over again at different times. We have made giving about things that it shouldn't be about. And so when I talk about giving, I go, oh, no telling what your minds are going to. But my job is not to worry about what your minds are going to, but to be faithful to God's word, to the text. To preach to you the truth of his word. And to live differently than these men in this story. And to have a group of men around us that live differently than this 
this group of men in this story. Let me tell you something. There are bad men in the world. There are churches and pastors and leaders, televangelists, different people who, who ask for money and do things around money that are evil and deceptive and wrong, just like this story. But I will tell you this with the sincerity of my heart, and I will look you in your eyes to tell you that is not who we are. And I encourage you to know me. Know Daryl. Know Jeff. Know Jerry. Know Jason. Know Lawrence. Know, know Leslie. Know all of us in such a way that you know that's not who those men are. I can trust those men. I can believe in what God is doing in our church because of the leaders, the fathers of this church. That's what an elder is. Someone who fathers the church. Give with a right heart when you give. This woman is honestly the opposite of the rich young ruler. Remember what he did? He had great wealth, the Bible says, and so because of his great wealth, he chose the idol of his money, the security in his money instead of salvation in Jesus. And very disappointed and sadly, he walks away from Jesus. Here this woman comes with everything. And she dumps it in. Dink. And it wasn't about the amount. It was about her faith, about her, her heart being given more than her wealth. Can I just ask you, what, is, what does giving look like for you? Again, even as I, I'm just being honest, even as I say it, I kind of go, oh. What does giving look like in your life? Again, I'm not talking about the amount that you give. I'm talking about the heart with which you give. What does it look like for you? Does your giving reflect your faith? How about that? What if Jesus is sitting back there watching that box today? <laughs> Does your giving reflect your faith in God and your trust that you're being obedient to him and you're, you're giving out of your love for him? Can I just tell you something this morning? If this is your church family, if you're a partner here, then it is our biblical responsibility to be together in this because God has given us a mission. God has given us a work in this city. And it is our desire to see people come to Jesus. We, we, we want to see that. We long to see that with all of our hearts. Our, our elders weep over it and we pray over it every time we gather. And it can't be done apart from us doing it together as the body of Christ in obedience to God. Do you believe in this mission? Do you believe in these elders? Do you believe in what God is doing in our church and discipleship? Then I would just ask you, to prayerfully consider sowing good seed here. And do it with a right heart and a joyful heart. And let, let it be something that you, you, you pray about and you seek the Lord in. And you say, God, help me to move towards the faith that represents what I believe of you. And in all of your life, I don't think you can look at this text and not consider that in all of your life, be careful of swindlers. Be careful of evil people who want to take advantage of you. But all people around the church that have to do with money are not all swindlers and not all evil. Know those people, ask questions, be connected so that you can give with a full heart of worship. I'm going to show you one last thing. I think we have it. This is from uh, Daniel Aiken's commentary. You might want to take a picture of this. I would encourage you to if you can. We'll leave it up for a minute. 
I just want to bring some attention. I thought these were so good. He calls this grace giving. And, and I want it just to be something that you think through, you pray through, you, it challenges you. But what this is about is how do we give? Why do we give? What is the purpose of giving? What, what does this need to look like for me as a believer in Jesus who wants to be obedient to Jesus? Well, number one, we need to understand that everything that has to do with me belongs to God. He created me. He sustains me. He gives me life and breath in this moment. I am his. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've literally been bought with a price, and that price is the blood of Jesus. Everything there is, every tangible thing, everything is his, including everything of mine. So God has made us stewards of all that we have. So what does it mean for me to steward the things God has given me and to love him and trust him and let my giving be a representation of my faith? Our, our possessions have a purpose. God wants to do something through you with his plan for this city. God wants to do something through you that glorifies his kingdom, that brings people to know him. We are investing with God, right? It goes on to talk about grace being sacrificial, the fact that each person should determine what they need to give, uh, that giving should demonstrate love, not law. Giving should be planned. We plan for our electric bill, right? We, we plan for food. We plan for the things that we spend money on. Do we plan for how we're going to give to the Lord? Do we take a look at what we make and say, Lord, all of it's yours. Now, how can I give, what can I give back to you? Is it planned? Our giving should be generous. Giving should be joyful. And this is the point that Jerry would so emphasize right now. When Jerry has, has and I won't even use the word scold. When Jerry has told me, he, he's never, never seen scold anything. Uh, when Jerry has loved me well, and said, hey, I want you to talk more about this. It's not because he wants us to have more money as a church. You need to understand that. He wants you to be blessed out of your obedience. That's what he wants. And that's what he leads with. He's like, do they need to know? It's never about the money coming in. It's about the blessing going to you. Because of what we do, how we give, what God, this is the one thing in all of scripture, Jesus, the Lord says in Malachi, test me. And see if I don't pour out the heavens upon you. The one place God says to test him. And so maybe in your giving habits, maybe you've given this and maybe God would have you give that. Test him. Giving biblically always results in God's blessings. So this morning we, um, we'll finish up. And we take these three stories that kind of can seem disparate or separate in some ways. And we say, Lord, what are you showing us? I think what he shows us is that he is <laughs> before Abraham. He is God incarnate. He sees all things from the beginning to eternity. He sees the brokenness of our hearts as he saw in the lives of those men. And he sees the beauty of our hearts when we give out of love. When our lives are the greatest offering we bring. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? That it's our reasonable act of worship that we would offer our lives as living 
sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, as a reasonable act of worship. Pray with me this morning. Father, we love you. I'm thankful for your word, God. And I'm so thankful for the, the privilege of teaching it verse by verse. I truly love it because we're not going to skip anything. We're not going to say, that feels a little uncomfortable. I'm not going to address that. No, God, we believe your word is life to us. Every single word. And so, Lord, we will address it. We will try and learn from it. We will try and be obedient to it. We will try and follow it, Lord, even though the culture around us says it's worthless. Even though the culture around us says, I can pick and choose. I can, I can do what I want and not do something else. God, we will take your word and we will say, Lord, teach us from every word. We believe it is holy. We believe it is inspired by you, written by you, so that we may grow, be edified and, and challenged and convicted, and ultimately that we would change as a result of it. So, Lord, we put our faith in you as Messiah, the eternal one who sees all things, the brokenness of the hearts of men and the beauty of surrender in the hearts of widows. Forgive us where we fail you. May we know you as our Savior. Lord, if there's one person here today that's never trusted you to be their Savior, God, will they trust in the truth of who you are as Messiah? Our only hope, our only life in the sacrifice of Jesus. And God, if there's anyone here who's made some mistakes, as we all have, there's somebody here that's living in habitual sin, struggling with how they serve, how they walk, how they believe, Lord, would you just call them to the place that you love them even while they are yet sinners? You want to forgive them. You want to draw them to yourself, and you want to disciple them to a loving relationship with you, to where we can actually live and look like this lady, so full of surrender, so full of life. Lord, help us to love you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.